Detox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing new research that pinpoints a mechanistic link between Parkinson's and melanoma. And we are also taking a look at where some Parkinson's biotech companies are now in 2021. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nabolsi. Thanks for coming today. So I wanted to talk to you all about an article I just published on six biotech companies that are developing therapies to treat patients with Parkinson's disease. And this was actually a follow-up piece to an article that we published back in 2019. And I really just wanted to see how far these companies have come uh, in the span of just two years, which is a relatively short time, as you know, in the pharma industry. So like other neurodegenerative disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease and dementias, Parkinson's disease research has been immensely challenging for biotechs, with a high rate of late-stage attrition in trials, leading to a lack of disease-modifying therapies being approved. And what I found in the course of my research is that most of these companies actually experience significant shifts in their clinical development programs and corporate structure since April of 2019, when the first article was published. So I'm not going to discuss all six of these companies today, but I'm going to focus on two of them. And listeners can click on the link in their podcast app or wherever they're listening to this episode to read the full article. So the first company I want to talk about is New York-based Prevail Therapeutics. When Xbox first wrote about this company in 2019, they had just secured $50 million in investments in a Series B financing round. And their approach to treating Parkinson's is through a one-time dose of gene therapy delivered in adeno-associated viral vectors. Now, let me just take an aside and explain that there are many factors that are believed to play a role in the pathology of Parkinson's. One of these is lysosomal dysfunction, with lysosomes being the organelles responsible for clearing waste material from cells. And it's the buildup of these toxic waste materials that's been proposed to play a role in neurodegeneration in Parkinson's. So back to Prevail Therapeutics, their first compound called PR001 is a gene therapy designed to replace a dysfunctional lysosomal enzyme called G-case. And mutations in the gene encoding G-case are currently the most significant risk factor for the development of Parkinson's disease with up to 12% of Parkinson's patients worldwide having at least one mutation in the gene. And according to Prevail, this amounts to 90,000 patients in the U.S. alone, making it an obvious target for gene therapy. In June 2019, Prevail entered PR001 into a Phase 1, Phase 2 trial with the goal of recruiting up to 16 patients, so a pretty small trial, with moderate to severe Parkinson's disease with a confirmed mutation in the gene encoding the lysosomal enzyme G-case. So where's Prevail's clinical development program now? Well, in early 2020, the company said they expected to release interim data from that early stage trial late last year. However, that was pushed back until mid-2021. 
While Prevail had already enrolled a few patients into the trial before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, this undoubtedly forced the biotech to halt dosing for a few months last year. And unfortunately, this trial could not be conducted using a decentralized model, something that was adopted by many pharma companies to keep trials going during the pandemic, um, because the route of administration for this gene therapy is through an injection into the cerebrospinal fluid-filled space at the top of the spinal canal. Another notable update from Prevail is that the company was acquired by Eli Lilly in December 2020 for 800 mil, uh, sorry, $880 million. So we'll have to wait until later this year to see some of those trial results and to see whether Lilly continues to develop this gene therapy now that they've acquired Prevail. So the second company I wanted to talk about is Voyager Therapeutics. It's another biotech company focused on applying one-dose adeno-associated virus vector technology to the treatment of Parkinson's. And this Massachusetts-based firm is also taking a gene therapy approach to Parkinson's. However, their technology is based on stabilizing dopamine levels in the brain. So remember I said there are multiple factors at play in the development of Parkinson's symptoms. Well, a lack of the neurotransmitter dopamine is thought to contribute to the development of tremor and balance problems, among other issues uh, in these patients. Because of this, dopamine synthesis has been a key target in Parkinson's disease drug development. And in fact, a dopamine precursor supplement um, called levodopa is one of the most common treatments currently for Parkinson's. So Voyager's clinical program focuses on using gene therapy to increase levels of AADC, that's an enzyme responsible for converting levodopa uh, into dopamine in the brain. And in 2019, a Voyager was testing their gene therapy called VYAADC in a phase two trial involving up to 100 patients. And at the time, they had just announced a strategic partnership with Neurocrine Biosciences, a San Diego-based Parkinson's biotech company, developing their own adjunctive therapy to levodopa. But since we had published that original article, a lot has changed for Voyager's Parkinson's program. In April 2020, just after the start of the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S., Voyager stopped enrolling new patients into their trial in an effort to reassess their protocol in the face of the outbreak. Still, the Parkinson's biotech company was confident that their phase three program, which they were going to run concurrently to the phase two program, would commence on schedule later that year. But unfortunately, in December, Voyager faced another stumbling block in the form of an FDA-mandated clinical hold on their trial. So an investigational new drug safety report submitted to the regulator detailed MRI abnormalities in some of the Parkinson's patients treated with their gene therapy, which prompted the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Board to ask Voyager to stop dosing patients in their trial, which had only just started enrolling again since the beginning of the pandemic. 
So what followed was Neurocrine, Voyager's partner in developing this gene therapy, cutting ties with Voyager's Parkinson's program in February of this year. And the FDA is requiring the biotech to provide a complete response regarding the MRI abnormalities identified in the trial, how their gene therapy may have contributed, and justify that a favorable benefit-risk profile still remains for the product. So for now, clinical development of this gene therapy has stalled. So um, considering how quickly we were able to get COVID-19 vaccines developed and approved for use across the world, do you think the drug makers are going to expect that the approval process of all new drugs will be expedited post-pandemic? Do you think the pandemic has taught us that some regular regulatory red tape is maybe unnecessary, um, or do you think drugs will continue to take ten plus years to gain approval? Um, you know, even after we're through the pandemic. Yeah, I definitely think that that's kind of been the talk around you know drug development and vaccine development since the pandemic. Um, basically, it's the pandemic has been a great example to showcase. Uh, what can essentially happen when the the right resources come together in a timely manner mm-hmm. um, in terms of both expertise and funding. Um, you know, in terms of a lot of um, biomedical research, um, it's hard to sort of pinpoint at times what the bottleneck is mm-hmm. um, in development of uh or, or just basic science research, as well as development of uh, therapeutics and therapies and treatments for diseases. So definitely there's, you know, a lot of red tape involved. And I think one of the pluses that has come out of the pandemic for sure is is um, how we've seen, witnessed um, vaccines having been developed so quickly. And I think a lot of other areas, disease areas of research can definitely benefit learning from that experience. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and in a lot of areas, not just drug development, um, we've seen also in terms of um, the pandemic having shifted over clinical trials to a more decentralized model, for example. And you have a lot of companies and a lot of uh, places adopting those decentralized mo- uh, models, essentially a, a work from home clinical trial kind of a mm. thing model for um, drug development. So I think a lot of uh, lessons and a lot of great examples um, should be learned from this pandemic and really to expedite the process. Really, there should, you know, it's shown us that there's no reason why a drug should take 10 plus years to develop and a lot of it is attributed to all of this red tape and bureaucracy that we can do away away with. And it's not always funding that being the issue that we're kind of led to believe, I think. Um, I always thought a lot of the time um, drugs took so long because of backlog. Um, Is that not a reason for drugs taking 10 plus years to do it, to get approved? Um, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. I think maybe there's a little bit of that. I know in general, FDA staff are um, pretty overworked. um, And but I I think for a lot of these 
companies, you're right, there's there's time spent in kind of waiting for their next review from FDA. But I know, I know the FDA um, provides these timelines in which they aim to review new drugs. And certainly those have been pushed back during the pandemic. Um, but I'm pretty sure in regular times, they, they stay within those timeframes. So it might be a few months for them to review, um, uh, you know, requests for uh, more information or um, other regulatory, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, submissions, basically, to be able to to go forward in this drug development process. Uh, so I think that might be a little bit of a part of that. Um, but I think the other thing is is often in the trial design as well. So um, this is sort of a different topic, but we've been seeing over the past, you know, 10 or 20 years, that placebo effect, if you're doing a placebo controlled trial, um, that placebo effect is very real. And so if you're comparing a new drug to a placebo, you're not necessarily always seeing the strength um, of the new drug and its ability to, to treat something. So sometimes patients who are on the placebo see a benefit. Um, and it's, I, I know that placebo effect is something that's still being researched and it's not fully understood what, what that's about. Um, but that challenges then the data that you get on the drug itself, because if it doesn't look that much better than placebo, it's not going to be approved. Right. Um, so I think there are a lot of factors at play. And I think my take on this is that I think after the pandemic, you know, drug makers are maybe going to push back a little bit against some of this regulatory red tape. But I have a feeling that the FDA isn't going to want to do what they did with the COVID-19 vaccines with most other, you know, drugs. Yeah, yeah I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say the same thing, especially because a lot of things were kind of put on hold to mm. get the, you know, vaccine mm-hmm. rollout and things like that for yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think definitely companies will start to push for maybe shorter timelines, but I don't know how realistic that would be, right. um, in my opinion. I think, yeah, the speed at which uh, vaccines were approved was mainly due to urgency and how it affected the entire world, right? Right. So I know there are many challenges in finding treatments and even cures for neurological disorders. Um, and it, it may be part of why it takes so long is because it's just not affecting, you know, as many people, perhaps, I, I, I don't really know. That's just kind of, you know, we're not going to see things move as quickly that don't affect as many people and are not as as deadly, mm-hmm. um, perhaps. Um, but I had a question in terms of the, the therapies. Um, when these companies are, you know, testing their, their therapies, do they, is there a certain age or point um, along uh, the Parkinson's, like, progression that you have to start or is there sort of a point in which it's kind of too late because I know you can get Parkinson's really at not at any age but it can be as early as your maybe 30s and 40s um so yeah can you give me some insight on on that yeah I think it really depends you know one thing I learned from my research into this article was that um Parkinson's is a really 
uh, heterogeneity. It's a really different kind of disease for different people. Um, so it, it's not like there's one kind of Parkinson's. So there's earlier onset, there's later onset. Um, there's often this genetic component and there's different mm -hmm. genes that are involved. Um, so I think depending on the mode of action of these, these gene therapies or whether they be, you know, small mo molecule drugs, they're really looking for different patient populations. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, normally in the drug approval process, um, a phase one trial would be testing your compound in just like healthy volunteers before you actually get it into the patient population. But I think with um, some of these types of drugs like gene therapies, they're testing them in the patients earlier on because uh, it would be hard to measure their effect or probably impossible if you were just administering them to you know, a normal person that didn't have the, um, the gene mutation that, that po potentially leads to Parkinson's. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question there. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. I was just, yeah, it, it, it's very true about, uh, you know, it affecting people differently. My grandmother had Parkinson's from, I want to say her mid fifties until mm. she passed away in her mm -hmm. late sixties, I would say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of my very good friends, her father was just diagnosed with Parkinson's and mm. he's in his early fifties and it, the progression moves at a different pace. Right. So yeah, it's, it's really, you know, a tough, you know, disease to, 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 to treat just because it affects people so differently. So mm -hmm. I look forward to a day where, you know, we have all these treatments or even a cure perhaps. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a really good point, Sydney. And I, and I think, um, because the understanding there of what really triggers Parkinson's, you know, we're not there yet. I think that makes drug development so much harder. Like when you completely understand, oh, this happens and then you develop this disease. I, I think it's easier then to figure out your drug targets. Right now, a lot of the um, therapies and development, certainly they're disease modifying. So they're looking to... Um, reduce the progression or slow the progression or even potentially stop the progression. Um, but there's no real, you know, quote unquote cure in development because it's hard to say, um, you know, what to target. And if there is anything we could target to completely prevent the Parkinson's symptoms from, you know, ever coming up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think even though this article was specifically focused on these Parkinson's biotechs, um, I think it's a really good snapshot for what has happened in the drug development world in general over the past two years and obviously how they were affected by the pandemic and those companies that were able to adopt a decentralized trial model like you were talking about, Aisha, um, were really able to keep their trials going. And for drugs like these gene therapies and, and things that are targeting the central nervous system, um, it's that's just often not something that's possible. So certainly uh, these companies faced months long setbacks in enrolling and dosing in their trials. And now that means that the results will be pushed back. Um, but it was interesting, and I, I wanted to end this discussion by sharing that the four other biotechs I profiled in the article have all seen substantial changes since 2019, with some companies being acquired, um, others rebranding, but all of their clinical 
programs currently remain in the early stages of development. This makes sense because as we were talking about, it takes longer than two years to get a new drug approved, at least right now, and particularly in the challenging area of CNS drug development. And um, I also talked a bit about some promising biotechs to watch this year for 2020 in the article as well. So um, as I say, people listening can, um, can check out the links in the description box there. So that's all from me. Aisha, what do you have for us this week? Well, so I also have another Parkinson's uh, related story. So a great segue into the next uh, topic that we'll be discussing. Um, So basically, I came across a new study that has unveiled a mechanistic link between Parkinson's disease and melanoma risk. So it's actually been known for quite a while, um, about 50 years or so now, that patients that have Parkinson's disease are at a higher risk of developing melanoma, almost two to six times more likely uh, than the general population. However, um, in this in this span of time, although we've known about this link, the exact reasons and mechanisms underlying that link have remained largely unknown. Um, so a study recently came out that, that was funded by the um, National Institutes of Health uh, Intramural Research Program. And this study's researchers actually found that two proteins, um, one being alpha-synuclein and the other being pre sorry, I'm butchering the name, pre-melanosomal protein or PMEL, um, which are involved in the formation of amyloid plaque deposits in the brain, which is characteristic of Parkinson's disease and a host of other neurodegenerative disorders as well. So these two proteins are not only implicated in uh, Parkinson's, but also in melanoma. So the researchers presented their results recently at the spring meeting of the American Chemical Society or the ACS, which is being held online currently and it's ongoing from April 5th to the 30th. So excessively high levels of alpha-synuclein are implicated in Parkinson's and the protein is a major component of what are called Lewy bodies. And these are basically clumps of protein that build up in the brain of patients with the disease. And they cause issues with memory, movement and other daily tasks and activities. So the scientists on the study found that the amyloid forming um, alpha-synuclein protein is is expressed at higher levels in melanoma cells as well compared to normal healthy skin cells. Um, and they also found higher levels of this alpha-synuclein in melanocytes, which are the skin cells that produce melanin and give rise to melanoma. And that higher levels of the protein are actually uh, associated with reduced melanin production. And so, of course, melanin is a pigment that protects the skin from damage caused by UV rays from the sun. Now, in addition to alpha-synuclein, as I mentioned, the scientists also found that PML, um, another protein that's involved in amyloid formation, is also involved in melanoma, and it's, it was found to be expressed in melanoma cells. Now, in healthy melanocytes, um, the pigment-producing cells, um, or sorry, the yeah, the cells that produce melanin, uh, this PML protein forms amyloid fibrils that function as kind of um, scaffolds to store melanin. Um, now, 
So knowing that both alpha-synuclein and PML, these two proteins that are involved in amyloid um, formation, were also present in the melanosomes of human melanoma cells, the scientists wanted to see whether the two proteins could interact. So was there a functional interaction and how did these two proteins work together um, in melanocytes. So for this, they did some in vitro experiments where they first added a preformed uh, alpha-synuclein amyloid to a test tube, which contained the amyloid forming region of PML. And it's uh, this region is known as the uh, repeat or RPT domain. And what they found was that when you add alpha-synuclein um, to the PML, it actually stimulated the aggregation of uh, PML so that it formed an abnormal kind of twisted uh, fibril structure. Now, alpha-synuclein can also be found in its soluble or non-amyloid form in melanoma cells. So they performed um, some more experiments to look at the soluble version of alpha-synuclein, and they found that um, the soluble version actually inhibited PML self-aggregation altogether. Um, and so you, you need to have that aggregation of the PML protein um, in order for it to form its final protein structure um, and act as that scaffold for melanin um, storage. So it actually inhibited the self-aggregation of PML altogether um, and led to formation of amyloid uh, plaques in a concentration-dependent matter uh, manner. Sorry. So in both cases, um, both versions of alpha-synuclein essentially interfered with the form and function of PML, uh, resulting in impaired me uh, melanin biosynthesis and storage, leading to formation uh, and also leading to formation of amyloid uh, in the case of soluble alpha-synuclein. So based on this preliminary data, the researchers say that loss of skin pigmentation could contribute to the increased risk of melanoma in Parkinson's disease patients uh, based on this mechanism. Basically, these two proteins that are found to be uh, highly expressed in Parkinson's um, could go on to trigger these mechanisms in melanocytes leading to impaired melanin production and increased melanoma risk. So targeting, targeting alpha-synuclein um, has actually been an important area of research in Parkinson's disease. Uh, for example, um, small molecule inhibitors as well as gene therapy approaches are being investigated um, that target alpha-synuclein to downregulate its synthesis and expression in the brain. And this could have important implications for treating uh, Parkinson's as, as well as reducing the risk of melanoma simultaneously. Um, and now with this other protein, PML, um, and showing its uh, interaction with alpha-synuclein in melanoma cells or healthy melanocytes before the development of melanoma, um, itself, um, this could be a new potential therapeutic uh, target or preventative approach against melanoma in uh, Parkinson's patients. So I thought this research was very uh, interesting. Um, you know, Parkinson's disease is, of course, a, a very uh, active area of research. Um, however, the disease is just as we were talking about, so heterogeneous. Um, it's really hard to sort of pinpoint targets of interest, but I really think that um, with this new research, um, you're 
now try, you know, getting to unraveling more mechanistic links and also the association with melanoma. So sort of um, you may be able to hit two birds with one stone essentially um, where you, you'll be able to target Parkinson's and then also decrease that risk of melanoma. So um, basically the idea you know, the research is super interesting. And it's interesting that this research was funded by the NIH. So a lot of this is very basic science research. So stuff that, you know, uh, you, you see in academic in academia, um, also a lot of drug companies, of course, in industry are conducting basic science research as well. However, there's more of that therapeutic, that drug development focus. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question here really is, um, I sometimes find there is a huge disconnect between academic research and research in industry, and I feel like both um, have their advantages. Um, academic, you know, academic science is often, you know, gets a bad rap for being slow and just focusing too much on the mechanisms or just the basic science. And then you have industry that's very fueled by, you know, drug development and things like that. And I really think. Um, you know, with a lot of the work uh, I'm, I'm doing here and, you know, a lot of this research uh, coming from an academic background myself, but now learning more about industry, I really think that both areas or both sectors or, or what uh, academia and industry could really benefit from um, greater interaction and collaborations with each other. And I think that could really fuel um, very promising, very positive collaborations and maybe help spur um, sort of um, greater, uh, you know, greater progress, sort of maybe. progress. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little bit. Um, so greater progress in um, terms of really number one, finding targets and then developing drugs against them. So industry is really great at doing that, you know, the drug development side, but then you have academia, which can be a bit sluggish in terms of like not having those timelines or those incentives to really get their basic research out and um, to sort of translate it clinically. So I really think both areas could benefit from um, increased collaboration with each other and that they don't always have to be in competition sort of in a way. So I don't know what your thoughts on that kind of are. So going back about your question, the minute you asked that question, the first thing I thought about was the Human Genome Project and how that was a collaboration between academia and institution and how successful that was. So I feel like there has been an effort to link both definitely to create much bigger and broader um, studies and the release of information much more easily to people. Um, because I feel like for the general public to scroll through, you know, something like NCBI or something like that, where a lot of academia is published might be harder, but merging both the institution and the academia part of things, I feel like helps a lot of people understand science more easily, just like you said, like understanding basic science in a broader picture. Um, but yeah, that was the first thing I thought about was how successful the Human Genome Project, and that was a collaboration between multiple institutions and academics. Um, yeah. Um, you know, that kind of an academia collaboration, um, for sure. And I think, um, yeah, after that Human Genome Project, I think we didn't really see too many more initiatives of that sort. Um, but 
there, there definitely are some more collaborations that I have been seeing and I've been talking to some people in industry. Um, also, I remember I wrote an article um, a, wh a while ago talking about people you know, scientists who have transitioned between academia and industry and, and mm. vice versa kind of a thing and people who have been working in both. Um, and I think that really, um, a couple of industry professionals work in academia and they can only say that there's positives um, coming out of kinds of collaboration, things like that. Um, you know, both basic science and having that uh, clinical translate, um, I think really, really important. Um, even in academia, I mean, you know, working at, uh, there are a lot of institutes located at um, research hospitals and things like that, where there's definitely a translational component. So it's not to say that academia is completely just, you know, in its own kind of tunnel vision or anything like that. I think the at the end of the day, um, in terms of human disease, at least research, um, the goal, of course, is to benefit the patients. And I think mm -hmm. um, academia is quite cognizant of that. All right, great. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Xtox Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Xtox Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.